This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Automation in the Future of Work by Aaron Beninov. Silicon Valley titans, politicians, techno-futurists, and social critics have united in arguing that we are living on the cusp of an era of rapid technological automation, heralding the end of work as we know it. But does the much-discussed rise of the robots really explain the jobs crisis that awaits us on the other side of the coronavirus? In Automation and the Future of Work, Aaron Beninov uncovers the structural economic trends that will shape our working lives far into the future. What social movements, he asks, are required to propel us into post-scarcity if technological innovation alone cannot deliver it? In response to calls for a universal basic income that would maintain a growing army of redundant workers, he offers a counter-proposal. Mike Davis called the book, quote, a powerful and persuasive explanation of why capitalism can't create jobs or generate income for a majority of humanity. I also interviewed Aaron earlier this year on this very subject. Check it out if you have not already. Automation in the Future of Work by Aaron Beninov. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. How did populism get such a bad name? A single word that succinctly conveys everything that is racist, anti-intellectual, conspiratorial, and provincial about mass working class politics. A label applied to right-wing demagogues like Trump, Bolsonaro, and Le Pen, who are then conflated with left leaders like Bernie Sanders, making all appear in the guise of superficially different instantiations of the same dangerous force. In short, says Thomas Frank, it was populism's elite enemies who defined the late 19th century movement of farmers and workers as maniac menaces to the social order. And then mid-20th century historian Richard Hofstadter, who rendered this partisan attack into a commonplace consensus account that is stigmatized an undifferentiated mass of challengers to establishment politics that followed. This all laid the groundwork for today's dynamic with a Democratic Party that sanctifies expert rule and a Republican Party that has successfully appropriated popular revolt and recast it as a conflict over social class with questions of economic power mostly aestheticized. This episode, an interview with Thomas Frank, is guest hosted by my brilliant guest host, Astra Taylor. Frank's latest book, The People Know, that's an O, no, is a history of anti-populism. If you find this subject interesting, we have a number of dig episodes that discuss populism, and I will link to all of them in the show notes. The first is an early dig classic, my interview with Aziz Rana on his book, The Two Faces of American Freedom, and it touches on the populist movement as one of the key conflicts over how universally American freedom would be defined. Another interview with Thea Riofrancos and Laura Gradin discusses how American populists and also populists more generally demarcate the boundaries of the people 
in their conflict with elites, drawing these necessary but fraught lines between us and them. Because while the late 19th century populist movement did achieve remarkable cross-racial organizing success, it also often fell short. Finally, I interviewed Alex Gorovich on the populist movement's union worker wing, the Knights of Labor, and their vision of a country refounded as a cooperative commonwealth, and how they built all sorts of educational and social institutions that such a democratic society would require. Again, I will link to all of these episodes in the show notes in case you are interested. Before we get started, the only reason that we can put out this podcast freely available to all of you regardless of your ability to pay, and the only reason that I can afford to pay Astra to guest host for me and thus make my life far, far more manageable is because those of you who can afford to support this podcast do so at patreon.com slash the dig. If you have been meaning to support us but have not yet done so, it will only take you just a minute. And even five bucks a month is a huge help. Please navigate your web browser to patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig and make a contribution. I also want to encourage you to join a dig book club to discuss the books discussed here on the dig first with fellow listeners and then to meet up with the authors of those books on Zoom. If you are interested, visit thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. The next book club book is Wendy Brown's In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, which I recently interviewed Wendy about. So read the book and then meet Wendy Brown. The next book up is by Dig Senior Advisor Theorio Francos, Resource Radicals. From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. I am certainly biased, but I can say with quite a bit of confidence that this is a remarkable book about how Rafael Correa's Pink Tide presidential administration came into conflict with the indigenous and other social movements that made his presidency possible, posing important questions, including about how law gets made in both official assemblies and in the streets, about what sort of socialism left governments in the global South can build in a world system that confines those countries to primary commodity exports like oil and minerals. Anyhow, Join a Dig Book Club. That's thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Okay, here is Thomas Frank, the author of a number of books about culture, politics, and business, such as Listen Liberal, What's the Matter with Kansas, The Conquest of Cool, and most recently, The People Know, A Brief History of Antipopulism. Many years ago, Thomas Frank founded The Baffler Magazine. He is interviewed by my go-to guest host, Astra Taylor, a filmmaker, writer, and co-founder of The Debt Collective, a union for debtors. Most recently, she directed the film What is Democracy? and contributed the foreword to The Debt Collective's new book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. Tom Frank, welcome to The Dig. Astra, it's good to be here. 
Let's begin with what is on everyone's mind. The election should probably begin by saying that this is November 10th, so things are still in play in a way. But if I remember correctly, you wrote an op-ed in The Guardian, but I think your gist was Joe Biden searched for months, lost in the forest, looking for the soul of America. He found it. He's going to restore <laughs> unity. There's going to be a grand bargain. Yeah, that's right. Rejoice. I wrote that. Yeah, yes. sure. So uh, there's a, a certain amount of relief. If this country had reelected Trump, I would have been I would have been really unhappy. I'm used to right wing presidencies, though. It's been my the story of my entire life. Uh, you know, it's all I've written about all these years. Uh, so it wouldn't have been a great shocker. But th- the fact is, Trump scares me, and I'm glad he lost. Uh, that's all. But uh, as you mentioned, it's November 10th, and the Republicans are refusing to concede. What, what I think they're up to right now. It's not like they can really stave off the the results, but they can. And I've written about this before. That one of their sort of long term projects is to delegitimize any Democratic president, which they did with Barack Obama, and which they did with Bill Clinton, even. And uh, and and they're just pushing the boundaries on this. You know, see how much farther they can take it. Uh, they can go a little farther than they did last time with Barack Obama, and they'll they'll do it. It's it's enormously frustrating because it doesn't matter, you know, that one of the fascinating things about the Republicans, which I have been writing about for decades now, Astra, is that they do push the envelope so energetically, you know, and they're always going they're They're always just seeing how how much they can get away with. And and uh, my team, the team that I have foolishly spent my life signed up with. They're entirely dedicated to to taking it, you know, to triangulation, to grand bargains, to reaching across the aisle, finding consensus. I just these are the two natural uh, sort of roles in our political universe. But it's absolutely maddening to be signed up with the team that that doesn't believe in their own positions. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know this so much better, and in. in- more gory detail than most of us, because as you just said, you've been writing about these issues, you know, for your entire career. So do you want to maybe step back and talk about both The Wrecking Crew and Listen Liberal before we jump into your most recent book, The People Know, and the history, the present and the future of populism, right? Because your books are all of a piece in some way and and really lay out how they got it, how how we got here. Yeah. And, you know, it starts with what's the matter with Kansas, which is about these uh, the class appeal of the right. You remember that came out in 2004 and it was it was highly controversial uh, it, it to, you know, it was a big surprise to me up until then. I'd never had a best selling book. I didn't really you know, I was not I was kind of a stranger to that whole world. And uh, it was a great surprise to me that the book was was controversial, because I thought that was it was obvious what was going on. But it turns out it wasn't. I mean, it's obvious now that the right really believes that they own this category of social class. They think that's their native terrain. They can't be beaten on this on this subject. And Trump is just the latest example of this. But Trump is also Trump is the wrecking crew, uh, which is the idea that the idea that, the, you know, it was looking at how conservatives rule when they actually are behind, you know, when they actually take take command of the uh, of the Oval Office, what do they actually do? And we all know the answer now. They appoint these people who don't believe in the mission of the uh, 
you know, the federal agencies, they appoint them to run the federal agency. So, I mean, just to choose today's example, <laughs> literally today's, the secretary of defense resigned today and, uh, or was it yesterday? But anyhow, he came to the job from Raytheon. He was a big defense contractor. It's like, you know, it's just endlessly putting the fox in charge of the hen house. <laughs> Is, is is what these people do, you know, putting polluters in charge of the EPA, putting bank, uh, you know, bank people in charge of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, you know, on and on and on. That's their model. And it's it's a very effective one. But then listen, liberal switched the perspective and looked at the, the weakness and the, the pathologies of the supposed opposition. Yeah, I'm very proud of that book, um, but it didn't win me a lot of friends. Uh, it's it's about uh, you know how the Democratic Party basically plays into the hands of this uh, this this right wing strategy. It's a history of how the Democrats lost their way. I've been doing a lot of histories of how people lost their way lately, but it's a, it's sort of the ultimate history of where the Democratic Party went wrong. I'll never forget uh, when I was starting work on it. Um, listen, liberal back in oh, would have been like 2013 or 2014. It was in the Obama years after the sort of the hope had drained away. I was talking to one of my regular sort of uh, collaborators, you know, sources, you know, a guy that thinks things through with me. And I said, I'm going to write a history of how the Democratic Party became moved to the right and became so dreadful. And he's like, well, yeah, well, the big question is, where are you going to start? <laughs> you know, where do you start with that? But it's uh, I started in the 1970s, but it's the story of how the Democratic Party decided that it didn't want to be the party of working people anymore. And instead, it started to serve this kind of different fantasy where it was going to be the party of the technocratic elite and of the information age and of the sort of the innovation economy. And uh, I mean, you saw, by the way, I saw a perfect example. Of, there's hundreds of examples of this around us every day, all the time. Uh, for example, Joe Biden bringing in these people from Silicon Valley to staff up his new administration. But I just saw Rahm Emanuel the other day saying, you know, this classic new Democrat remark uh, where he said that, you know, the, these these jobs in these old industries are not coming back. There's nothing we can do for you, but you have to go out and learn how to code or something like that, which is both extremely bad politics, right, because you just lost these people's votes forever. You know, what a stupid thing that is to say to try to put the blame on they themselves for, for, for economic decline. You know, you didn't get educated right. But second of all, you know, that, that, that fantasy of the new economy and like that's going to bail you out, that's going to fix everything or that's going to, you know, fix something anyways. If everybody can just go out and, and learn how to code, right, that, that'll, that'll solve all the problems. It's interesting to, to think about that comment, too. I mean, because it's just bad advice, uh, but also alongside. Yeah, but, he, but he, this, is, this is a guy that advises presidents, Astra, uh, and, and, and writes books. And it was the mayor of Chicago and is, is still taken seriously. 100%. I mean, it's interesting, though, because I'm thinking of Prop 22, which was the big ballot initiative in California. And I think it was maybe the second most expensive race on Election Day, where Silicon Valley, the bastion of coding, right, undermined worker protection and basically subverted years of organizing and democratic legislation in order to say, no, actually, everyone who works for us, all the drivers, all of the gig workers are independent contractors who shouldn't have a minimum wage floor, who shouldn't have any benefits. And that was supported by 
uh, erstwhile Obama officials and and relatives of Kamala Harris, right? So this is big D Democratic Party policy. You are exactly right. And it it absolutely drives me crazy. And it is a, a perfect example of where the party stands and where they think they're going and why this why Trumpism is going to go on. I mean, because, you know, who's out there? You know, those people are going to have their lives ruined. Those gig workers. I mean, they already are. You know, we, you and I have both written about this. It's it's been going on for years and it's. The, the sort of the key to understanding the Democratic Party in a, if you want to put it in one tiny, you know, in one microcosm, one perfect little issue, turning their backs on, you know, on the middle class society, turning their backs on workers, turning their backs on all these years of organizing in order to uh, do a huge favor for Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, that's who they are. That's who the Democratic Party is. And uh, we were talking about the gig economy, which is, as I said, one of the most corrosive things. If you want to talk about what makes inequality happen in this country, what destroys the middle class society that you and I grew up in, it's you, you, you'd say, well, it's this. This is this sort of gig economy fantasy. And this is the direction that every, you know, every job is going in, every profession is going in. But I'm here to tell you that, by and large, the radicalized Republican Party stands ready to welcome those people into its ranks. I mean, I've watched this happen in the part of America that I am from. You know, Missouri was a demo- solidly democratic state when I was a kid. And now you drive, and now, of course, it's entirely the other way. It's a, you know, the Republicans have a lock on it. But you drive around to these small towns in Missouri, they didn't become Republican because they got prosperous. You know, they became Republican because their future just went through the meat grinder. They've got nothing. Their world is is has fallen apart. And this is the Republicans are the only protest vote out there anymore. So there you go. We're going to get back into this and why that is the case. I, I'm just curious, what's what's next for you? I mean, you've done these autopsies almost of the Democratic Party, of the Republican Party. Uh, where where does Thomas Frank go from the, from this point? Well, the thing is, Astra, I'm just so sick of politics. And I don't just mean Trump, although I'm uh, I'm sick of that guy. And I'm also sick of Joe Biden. I'm all it's like he just got elected. I'm already tired of him. You know, he's a walking cliche. But it's more than that. I'm it, it's a um I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again and and uh and there's there's limited, you know, return on this on the writing about this subject again and again and again. Nobody it's very difficult to get people to listen. And There are so many interesting aspects of American life. So long ago, Astra, I used to write about other things, you know, about uh, business culture. My first book was about the advertising industry. And I used to write about sort of funny, amusing, interesting aspects of business culture. And I kind of want to get back to where I left off uh, with that stuff and uh, and proceed down that, that avenue. I'm really just so sick of politics. The Conquest of Cool is a classic. I highly recommend it to anyone listening. The People Know is also an excellent book. I hope it becomes a classic. I want to take us back to the glorious year, Tom, of 2016, when the current debate about populism started brewing. So there was Brexit, right? And then the election of Donald Trump. And it caused a flurry of articles, which became books, many of them, about the rise of populism. And I wrote a piece back then about this. I was greatly annoyed by this discourse particularly the way there was this false equivalency between Sanders and Trump. 
which I, I found just to be very bankrupt uh, and demonstrably false. Um, but I'm just wondering if you can sort of recap that discourse for us, that moment, because you open your book with it as well. Why did you find it so frustrating? So years ago, uh, I I was fascinated by populism, by which I mean the uh, political movement in the 1890s, the people who invented the word populism. It was a sort of farmer labor movement, and it was particularly strong in my home state of Kansas. For a while, they basically ran the state. The populists did. And so um, I had studied populism. I'd read you know, when I was a graduate student in history, that, that was my subject. And I had read the literature on populism. I knew the subject very well. Uh, I really admired the original populists. And I couldn't believe it when people started using that word as a kind of shorthand for um, uh, racist demagogue, which is what they were doing with Donald Trump. And so many of these these sort of European demagogues, Jair Bolsonaro, um, uh, or, or using it as a synonym for anti-intellectualism, you know, because none of those, anyhow, it, it drove me crazy because that's not what populism was. And that's not what the word means to me. Uh, now, there are ways to say that Donald Trump mimics populism or that Donald Trump is a kind of phony populist or that Donald Trump and the Republican Party is building a kind of a weird shadow left, which they are doing. I think all of those things are correct. But to just call him a populist is, it made me mad, Astra. And and I started seeing this word all over the place. And I think, uh, by the way, I've noticed this with uh, other people that I know from Kansas and from the Midwest who are familiar with the original populist movement and know something about it and have this kind of uh, regional pride you know, in in our in their forefathers uh, who were in the populist movement, and it just pisses people off. The, these people, when they hear the word used this way, so that was my initial reaction. I wrote an article about it for the Guardian, sort of going after some of this literature uh, for just you know for getting the uh, pop, the populist tradition in America completely wrong. And then I decided to write a book about it. <laughs> and it turned out to be one of, I, th I am very proud of the people know of this new book of mine, because along the way, you know, it starts from what I just said, like, this is not what populism was. Let's talk about the real deal. Let's talk about what populism was. But along the way, I, I sort of stumbled into a much more interesting argument, which is a much more interesting history, which is the history of anti-populism, the people who hated populism in the 1890s and who still hate it today. These people are fascinating to me. I mean, maybe we begin with the, the deceptively simple question, which is just what is populism, right? If you could define it, because it, it's a term that is being contested. It's being used as a weapon by these anti-populists. And I've been struck by the way that it is being appropriated by the right right now. Um, Kaylee McKinney is how do you say her name? The Trump press secretary. I, I don't know. I don't know. Kaylee, right? But she wrote a book called The New American Revolution, The Making of a Populist Movement. And I totally agree. Trumpism is faux populism. I mean, that's the first thing I say to people when they say Trump is a populist. And I say he's a fake populist, right? This is. Yeah, of course. But he's but she I guarantee you she doesn't know what it means. Uh, you know, Steve Bannon uses the word all the time. I don't think Steve Bannon knows what it means. Pat Buchanan uses it all the time. Buchanan, um, one of the rare. So it's unusual for politicians to apply the word to themselves uh, anymore. Uh, although, by the way, I uh, since I wrote the book, I discovered that Obama did more than once. 
<laughs> he called himself a populist. Uh, Jimmy Carter used to call himself a populist. Uh, but it's unusual for politicians to apply the word uh, to themselves. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan does, but none of these people really know what they're talking about. So if you, if you want to trace the actual history of the word, you know, you go back and look where it was, uh, where it came from. And it was made up by these guys in this, um, in what was called the People's Party uh, in the year 1891. They were looking for, they, they realized that the name of their third party movement, and it was the last sort of successful or marginally successful, I should say, third party movement in American history. They took over, they did very well elected politicians from elected office holders from all these different states in the Midwest and the South and the Far West. Uh, and uh, their formal name was the People's Party, but it was very clunky. You know, it's, it's not, it's not, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. And so they, uh, a bunch of politicians from Kansas were sitting around one day on a train in 1891 trying to come up with a name, a nickname for this for this organization. And they came up with populism and uh, and it stuck. It caught on. It, my definition of it, you know, you want to take this this history seriously, which I think we're obligated to do. The populist tradition, you know, to sort of extrapolate from that movement and then from other movements that were very similar to it that happened later on in American history, you'd have to say what populism is, the populist tradition, is multiracial coalition of working people coming together, you know, a mass movement of working people coming together for economic democracy. So multiracial is an important part of it. It's not a racist movement. Uh, working people is, is, is important. The populists were intensely focused on the working class. They talked about it all the time. Um, and economic democracy, what they're coming together for is also important. They're coming together to help out the people at the bottom, farmers, uh, labor. They're, they're, they're looking for the eight-hour day. They're looking for a federal farm program. They're looking for a sort of a, a war on monopolies. Uh, they're looking for a banking system that works for ordinary people. You know, they're not looking for tax cuts for the rich. <laughs> they're not... Or like, what? what is Trump's? They're not trying to put America back on the gold standard, you know? So that's my that's my definition of populism. And if you define it like that, there are populist movements that erupt throughout American history. Uh, so the, in the 1930s, you, you know, you have the, the labor movement. Uh, in the 1960s, you had the civil rights movement, which kind of morphed or was in the process of morphing into a, a broader populist movement uh, about economic issues. I mean, that's what Martin Luther King used to talk about all the time. And then he was murdered. And, that, and then the Vietnam, between that and the Vietnam War, that kind of put an end to it. The Bernie Sanders movement is very much in this same vein. But anyhow, that's that's how I define this movement. And the, what, when you look at someone like Donald Trump or uh, any of these other Republicans that I've been writing about my whole life, it's kind of a, a, a cynical, a shadowy kind of fake populism, fake workerism, fake left. So, Astra, let's take a step back here. One of the things that I've uh, that has uh, my that you know the, a theme of all of my writing and all of the books that I've been writing all these years is that this is a country that doesn't really have a traditional left anymore. The Democratic Party killed it off in the 1990s with, with Clintonism. You know, we don't really have a traditional left in this country. Who's going to fill that, that niche? You know, there's still a need for that. 
there's still people that want, you know, there's still lots of working class people in America. It's not like their needs have gone away. Uh, who is going to fill that market niche? And the answer is you've got these kind of these fraudsters on the right who reach out to those people and tell them how, you know, and, and give them this, you know, these false promises, the, the Donald Trumps of the world. That's what it is. So the absence of a real populist movement paves the way for fake populism. I mean, I think what you've just said about the U.S. not having a real left. I mean, we don't have a labor party. We don't have a party that came from the labor movement and then organized itself to fight for influence on the political system. Right. Instead, we have two ruling class parties. Right. But now we have two ruling class parties who are trying to organize just enough support that they can win in a winner-take-all election. But this was, you you write at one point that populism was one of the first great efforts to tame the capitalist system. And this is a proudly socialist podcast. And so I'm wondering, you know, where does socialism fit into this conversation historically? And, you know, today, do you consider the democratic socialist? You just said Bernie Sanders is very much in the populist tradition, and I agree. I just was wondering if you could dig into that a bit more. Yeah, I mean, there is a there is a difference. The uh, populists, uh, a lot of them were socialists, uh, but they were the, their idea was to be a much broader movement than that. Um, so they weren't Marxists. This is important to remember. They were they traced their thinking to Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine, people like that. Very, you know, uh, well-known American sort of founding fathers, that kind of thing. They knew who Marx was. They even, like, if you read their newspapers, they would refer to Marx and stuff like that, but they weren't Marxists. Uh, Marxism generally doesn't regard farmer farmers as a, uh, you know, as a sort of suitable proletarians, usually because farmers own their own land, which they certainly did in Kansas. These are, uh, but, you know, you know, that's probably a mistake. These people did. Obviously, in Kansas, they do own their own land, but these are nevertheless some of the poorest people in America. Or you look at the populists in the South, and yeah, a lot of them did own their own land, but these are these were, at the time, some of the very poorest people in America. And uh, it, it would be wrong to sort of to, to, to uh, uh, exclude them from well, anyhow, it doesn't matter anymore because farmers are no longer at the time. Farmers were the were an absolute majority in America. Was, they were more than 50 percent of the population. But when populism died uh, after the election of 1896, uh, you know, it formally the, the party lingered on a little long, a little after that. But all the uh, you know, they basically got the wind knocked out of them by that election. And that was the end of them. And a lot of the leadership went over to the brand new socialist party. So Eugene Debs, for example, who became a socialist leader, had been a populist. Uh, and the, uh, the great socialist newspaper, it was called The Appeal to Reason. It was published out of Girard, Kansas. And we'll, we'll talk more about this later if you want. Uh, the, the Appeal to Reason started its life as a, as a populist newspaper and then made the big switch over to socialism uh, that so many of these people did. That's the you know that's basically what it is. But uh, populism is, a, is is something that I think is is uh, is much more in the American grain. Uh, you know, it doesn't look to European theorists. It's uh, it's it's very much all American. So I would say that it. And when I talk to Europeans and I describe what the populist party believed in and stuff like that, they say, "Well, that's just social democracy," and that's true. It is. It was. That is absolutely correct. But it's the American version of that. So, you know, the Labour Party in England, Populist Party was very similar to the Labour Party in England or the Labour Party in Australia. 
uh, and came up at the same time. But it nevertheless, it, it was um, it was uniquely American. Talk a bit more about those early farmers and some of the institutions they built, like the Farmers Alliance, just to sort of flesh out a vision so we can feel them with us in 2020. Okay. Yeah. So they were farmers, as I said, were they were uh, absolute majority of the population, more than 50 percent. Uh, it was, you know, by far the largest occupational group in America in the 1880s and 1890s. But they were a group that was on their way down. Uh, they were losing in, you know, they were they were growing poorer as the years went by. And, uh, you know, it was becoming very difficult for them to survive. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a, a, a farm crisis. And we've had farm crises in our own lives. The last big one was in the 1980s. You know, it was sort of the end of the family farm. But this is a, an earlier one. And it was it went it dragged on for decades, and farmers just felt their situation getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, and you know, in the South, they were basically they had become a kind of pauper class or a serf class. They were at the they were basically controlled by local bankers and merchants who would extend them credit. And then this system, be, you know, uh, it it got worse. Till the you know the farmer or till the uh, bankers and the merchants were actually instructing the farmers what to grow, what to do, what to do with their time, how to you know what everything. So the uh, a group called the Farmers Alliance, which is basically a farmers union, came together and with the idea that if farmers all got together all over America and started studying economics and studying their situation, they could figure out what had gone wrong and what they might do about it. This movement among farmers grew by leaps and bounds. It became an enormous mass movement. It had all of these different chapters and sections, and there were regional varieties of it. And it had millions and millions and millions of members. And they they called themselves, and this is an important point for later on when we talk about how populism was characterized by the establishment of the day. This movement, uh, the Farmers Alliance, uh, called itself a national university because it's uh, the idea of it was to educate farmers. Uh, farmers were people who, by definition, did not have a lot of education, had not gone to college, usually had not gone to high school. And the Farmers Alliance would distribute pamphlets among these people, uh, pamphlets explaining their economic situation. They set, tried to set up uh, universities here and there. They, uh, uh, they would send lecturers around the country talking about the farmers' economic situation. Uh, that kind of thing. It was an educational organization. They also set up newspapers. So like every small town in Kansas would have had a Republican news. Newspapers were partisan at the time. You'd have a Republican newspaper and then you'd have a populist newspaper or a Farmers Alliance newspaper that would be this sort of very left wing take on issues of the day. And it's, uh, their idea was to, you know, figure out what had gone wrong for farmers and uh, take, you know, collective action to do something about it. And what they eventually discovered after trying all of these different forms of collective action, what they discovered is that they couldn't do anything without politics. And so they, as they put it, they went into politics and they did this at first by endorsing um, politicians from one of the two major parties, but that was frustrating also. And so they decided to launch their own party, which was a big move, very daring move. And they did it. And this was populism. And they came from out of nowhere in the year 1890. This is the first year they tried it. They came out of nowhere in 1890 and took over the Kansas legislature. Kansas was their big, uh, was their most successful state. 
Kansas was kind of radical at the time, you know, settled by abolitionists and that kind of thing. And they uh, they took over the state legislature in Kansas as complete shocking surprise to the local Republican Party <laughs> and to the indeed to the entire world. And uh, then they they went from there to uh, all over the Great Plains states, all over the West, all over the South, uh, all over the Midwest also with different levels of success in different places. So the only place where they didn't have any success at all was in the Northeast. But they're the last time that a third party, you know, organized nationally, contested elections all up and down the ballot, and in fact, elected, you know, members of Congress, mayors, uh, governors, uh, you know, ran a guy for president, but that was an afterthought, et cetera. And that was, that was populism. That's where it came from. But they, uh, along the way, they accreted all of these uh, other groups that joined up. So you, it started with the Farmers Alliance, but eventually they had signed on all the other sort of labor reform groups of the era. So the Knights of Labor were part of this movement. Uh, the, there were all of these other unions were part of it. The AFL was not, by the way. Uh, what's his name? Samuel Gompers wanted no part of this. <laughs> but a lot of the more sort of radical unions uh, signed on. They wanted uh, a lot of electoral reform. So this uh, women's suffrage movement was part of this uh, reform effort of populism. And uh, that's what it was. Should I tell you about what their demands were? Or have I talked enough? I talk too much, Astor. This is the problem. Actually, you could just go on autopilot because the demands are next. I mean, part part of they also use really smart strategies like the sort of fusion ticket strategy, right? Like trying to figure out where you actually intervene in the American political system, which I feel like leftists are just now starting to do in a strategic way. Uh, that's another sort of resonance with the moment we're in. But absolutely, so many of their demands are now kind of common sense because they were victorious, right? Yeah, absolutely. They, uh, yeah, they wanted, um, they had their three big economic demands, which were uh, a government program for farmers, which we got, of course, in the New Deal. Uh, they wanted uh, the government to nationalize the railroads, which we never did, but we do regulate the railroads, which is um, amounts to the same thing. This kind of they wanted this kind of war on monopoly, and uh, what's the third? Oh, the gold standard, of course. They wanted to reform the currency, which I didn't really talk about. It's it's hard for modern day listeners to understand the uh, this uh, huge economic issue in the 1890s, but I'll take a stab at it here. The uh, populists wanted to, we were on what was called the gold standard at the time, which meant that the value of the dollar was pegged to the amount of gold that we had in the US treasury. And because gold is extremely scarce, the value of the dollar would go up all the time. So this is called deflation. It's the opposite of inflation. And it's uh, really, really, really bad for you if you borrow money. If you're someone, and Astra, this is where where you and uh, the, the, the debt movement come in. Farmers back then and to this day are a debtor class. They borrow money in order to, it's just part of their operations. Every year they, they borrow money. And then at the end of the harvest, after they've sold their, their harvest, they pay it back. This is what farmers do. The problem is if the currency is deflating, you borrow money and then you have to, when you go to pay it back, it's worth a lot more. So let's say you borrow the equivalent of five bushels of corn and when you go to pay it back, it's seven or eight bushels of corn. Uh, and this is a huge part of the explanation of why farmers were going down in the 1890s and why their standard of living was declining and why they were being ruined. And so they wanted to get America off the gold standard and have a currency that kept pace with the you know, growing economy and growing population rather than doing the opposite, which is what the gold standard did. 
Then they also wanted uh, electoral reforms. They wanted to make it easier for people to vote and safer. So they wanted votes for women. They wanted uh, the secret ballot. At the time, you would vote in public and everybody could see who you were voting for because your ballot was distributed by one of the two political parties. Uh, They wanted um, an Australian innovation, right? Not something from the United States. (laughs) You know that they call that the Australian ballot. That's right. Well, I'm saying that because last night I did a Zoom with about a dozen Australians who knew every detail of our political system and looked at me with such pity. And then when I said, how do you like the system of compulsory voting that you have? And they just said, it works really well. And they have a, you know, an independent election commission that makes sure every person votes. It, you know, it was so, so we could, we need more Australia in the United States moving Don't forward. Don't they hand out free sausages at the polling place? Isn't that like part of the deal I, there? I actually think that it is. Yes. <laughs> they have a name for them. They're like uh, election sausages or something. I, I forget what they call them, but when you go to vote, they re- reward you with like a tasty sausage. Uh, any- <laughs> It's just, that's so weird. The populace never thought of that one. But it, so can I, let me just summarize all this by saying that they, they were, this, all this happened in the 1890s in a world that's really similar to the world today. There was incredible concentration of wealth, right? There's no income tax. They wanted an income tax, by the way. That was one of the populist demands. There was no income tax. This is the great heyday of the Vanderbilts and the Astors and the Carnegies, you know, these the gigantic American, the great American fortunes, right? Enormous concentration of wealth, huge monopolies. This is when Standard Oil is coming up. You already have all the railroad monopolies are in place. Uh, You have a steel monopoly. Uh, and and there's no either the government doesn't do anything to stop these monopolies. Uh, and and it's also a time of extraordinary political corruption. And what the populists realized and what we're starting to realize again today is that these three things went hand in hand, that the extreme concentration of wealth and monopolization go hand in hand with political corruption. I mean, and that is so obvious today, but it was obvious to them. Also, and so when we look for when we want to look for a good predecessor, populism is a good place to start. Unfortunately, the word has been poisoned for us, which we'll come to in a little while, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, to the debt point, right? So wealth concentration, political corruption and mass indebtedness, because I have been called a populist many times by people who are not happy with me. For example, Yasha Monk, who you talk about in your introduction uh, denouncing my work. He thinks he thinks that's bad. Oh, yeah. I was named as a bad guy. Um, <laughs> I mean, but but we you know, so there is there is there's something in that demand. That demand is is rising again. The demand for debt cancellation um, and thinking about farmers, they are not as as numerous a class. But, you know, I would recommend that people read Zephyr Teachout's book on uh, Monopoly. There's a great chapter on the situation of chicken farmers in this country where they're deeply indebted to uh, Tyson Foods and handful of megacorps and basically, you know, have no autonomy, have no freedom or anything but the sort of. Oh, it's, it's, it's exactly the same, Astra. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's remember how I said like the southern bankers and business like local merchants instructing the farmers what to do. They do this now. This has all come back. If you're in farm country, you know, the the local, you know, chicken processor 
tells you what to do. They call it the tournament system. It's it's unbelievable. But yeah, this still goes on. Yeah, they send out suicide prevention newsletters every month, I think, along with the report of how much money you owe them. So, I mean, it's exactly the same. I do want to linger because you make some really great points about their demands to get off the gold standard. They wanted, you know, they wanted to change the, the monetary policy. And as you note, uh, you know, the famed historian Richard Hofstadter wrote even in the early 1960s, denouncing them as yesterday's cranks. And, you know, they were seen as these harebrained amateurs, right, stepping out of the lane and trying to have opinions about things that should be left to the experts. But who was correct in the end? Right. We're not on the gold standard. And so these self-educated farmers have have been vindicated. Yeah, they turned out to be right on uh- all the issues that I mentioned. We have a farm program. We regulate railroads. We regulate monopolies, or at least people think we do. Women have the vote, the you know the ballot. You know, we have initiative and referendum. We have the secret ballot. We have all the eight-hour day. We have all those things. Well, we used to have the eight-hour day. You know, the, yeah. The, this is this is a group that has been absolutely vindicated by history. They basically everything on their agenda uh, eventually happened. But you know, to finish up the story, it didn't happen. By their hand, it, it had it took 20, 30, 40 years for it to happen. And it was done by others uh, because the populist party uh, you know, fell apart. Uh, they, they didn't last very long, seven, six or seven years, basically. Was public banking one of their core demands? Uh, that was uh, not one of the it not. It's not like mentioned in their platform, but there were places where they did that. So if you look at North Dakota, North Dakota was a big time populist state and they did uh set up a public bank there. I don't know if the populists did it or if their heirs did it. So there were there were sort of neo-populist movements for years afterwards. Like in North Dakota, they were called the Nonpartisan League. By the way, you mentioned something interesting earlier about the, 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 uh, the tactics and the strategy of this. These were guys that didn't prevail, obviously. They didn't win in their lifetimes, but they did make one hell of a splash and they used a lot of pretty hardball tactics, you know, things that you look at our modern day Democratic Party and who always seem to just get played for chumps. You know, they're they're really good at sort of tamping down their left wing, but they're really bad at every other aspect of the political game. One of the, the tactics that the populists would use. And this is this was common in the 19th century that there were uh, the populists were the last of a series of third party movements. There were um a whole bunch of them, some of them more successful than others. But uh, they had, you know, the Republican Party started life as a third party. Third parties had a role in American politics, which is that they would force the other two parties to deal with an issue that the other two parties would rather ignore. So in the case of the Republican Party, that issue was slavery. In the case of populism, that issue was, you know, industrial capitalism. Uh, what are you, you going to do about these things? And the two, the, the main parties would rather just ignore the issue and not do anything about it. But the third parties would force them. Uh, that's no longer available to us. One of the things that the populists did to uh, make these issues, you know, to put these issues on the agenda was a, a, a tactic called fusion, where they would sometimes line up with the Democrats and then other times they would uh, line up with the Republicans and sometimes they would line up with nobody and just run by themselves. Uh, and either way, to bargain with these other parties and get what they wanted. Uh, and they used this uh, strategy to great effect. Uh, you know, they elected two governors of Kansas this way. They elected a lot of other officials this way. You know, when you have three parties rather than two, this is how it's done. The two of them will gang up on the third and they'll somehow prevail. 
I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, edited by Sumeya Awad and Brian Bean. Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, systematically tackles a number of important aspects of the Palestinian struggle for liberation, contextualizing it in an increasingly polarized world and offering a socialist perspective on how full liberation can be won. Through an internationalist, anti-imperialist lens, this book explores the links between the struggle for freedom in the United States and that in Palestine and beyond. It examines both the historical and contemporary trajectory of the Palestine Solidarity Movement in order to glean lessons for today's organizers, and compellingly lays out the argument that, in order to achieve justice in Palestine, the movement has to take up the question of socialism, regionally and internationally. As Nura Erekat says of the book, quote, the volume provides the reader with an internationalist framework defined as a commitment to anti-imperialism and uses it to place Palestine into local, regional, and global historical context. The book connects the past to our present and, despite the daunting odds before us, sustains a commitment to a socialist future where all of us are free because all of us are free. Palestine, a socialist introduction, edited by Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean, out now from Haymarket Books. I think we should linger on North Carolina. Well, first off, I'm speaking for my closet in Greensboro, North Carolina. But you know what happened in, in North Carolina is is a fascinating piece of American history, and also because we do have to talk about the question of race and and racism. I mean, there are. At the heart of this idea of populism and at the heart of democracy is this question of who is the people, who's included in the people, who's excluded in the people, who is in, who is out, who is scapegoated and who is named as the as as friend or as enemy. And so I think you make a really strong case. And I agree that populism is this multiracial movement for economic democracy. It's a tendency that recurs throughout American history. And it's a tendency that is important today. But you quote, you know, some of the most famous populists like Georgia populist Tom Watson, you know, did become diehard white supremacists. So this is a man who said, you know, and this is a quote to uh, to black and white workers. He said, you are kept apart that you may be separately fleeced of your earnings, which I believe is true. But this man's trajectory flew in the face of that insight uh, and he became a, an incredibly nasty white supremacist. So I think we I just want to linger on this. And I think North Carolina is a great example of the depth of possibility of multiracial democratic possibility and then the, the, the backlash. Yes. And this is especially important because the way the word populist is used nowadays is as a synonym for racist. And it's, so it's really, really important to understand that that's not who the original populists were. They were not the racist party of the 1890s. Anybody that knows American history knows who the racist party of the 1890s was. It was the Southern Democrats. They were, they were called the Bourbon Democrats. Uh, and they were a poisonously racist party. This is, you know, extremely well known. They were the legatees of the Confederacy. 
And um, populism, as I said, was a movement of farmers, and in the South, obviously, it was an agricultural region, still is. And uh, populism had a uh, black wing. Uh, historians refer to them as the black populists. They had their own. Uh, they, 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 the Farmers Alliance was segregated, at least in the South, it was, and they had their own uh, sort of version of the Farmers Alliance. When populism went into politics. That's one of the first things they did. So they confronted this system in the South where uh, they called this the system in the South white solidarity. So at the time, blacks could still vote in most Southern states. This is in the early 1890s we're talking about. Blacks could still vote in most Southern states. And the way the white ruling class stayed in power, these are the bourbon Democrats that I'm talking about here. The way they stayed in power was by um, saying to the voters, uh, your interests as white people is paramount to any other interest that you might have. And you have to stick together as whites and vote for the party of white people and vote for, in other words, the Bourbon Democrats. And this is how they maintain their grip on, on the South, is through this doctrine, white solidarity. And the populists uh, said something really, really interesting in the early 1890s, they said, no, in fact, your interests as farmers is more important than your interests as white people. And so therefore, and they said to the, to the black farmers, come and join up with us. And the white farmers join up with the black farmers. And together, we're going to come together and we're going to get reforms. This was their sales pitch in the early 1890s. And what the, the quote that you just read from Tom Watson is, is very famous. They, he published that in a national magazine saying, this is how populism, the, this new third party, this is how we are going to address the race issue in American life by saying that black farmers and white farmers have a lot in, have have economic interests in common. Now I don't want to exaggerate this. He wasn't saying that they should be friends or that they should they should be uh, you know social equals or anything like that. He's just saying they should vote together the, the, and they should you know they should come together politically to advance their economic interests. That was his argument, and this is what this is the case that populism tried to make across the South, and th this is fairly famous in American history. And you can guess what happened next. The Southern, you know, the, the white ruling class just came down on them like a ton of bricks and uh, used every trick in the book to beat these people, you know, lynching people, shooting people. You know, this is how elections were fought in the 1890s in the South. And, uh, and it went both ways. The populists fought back, but the populists, by and large, they lost, uh, except in one state, and that was North Carolina. In North Carolina, they, it's the only southern state where they actually managed to legally win the election. They probably won in other states as well, but they were cheated out of their victories. Uh, like Tom Watson had been a member of Congress, and the Bourbon Democrats basically cheated him out of it once he had made that, you know, made that stand. Anyhow, but in North Carolina, they managed to win. They elected a governor and they elected a you know, U.S. senator and they did this and they did that. They did it by coming together with the local Republican Party, who at the time was the party that uh, most black voters were still loyal to. They won a couple of statewide elections in North Carolina. They took over the legislature. They passed a lot of laws allowing home rule in local areas, which meant that there were then black office holders at the municipal level. And this made, uh, again, the Bourbon Democrats went a little bit crazy, <laughs> a little bit. They went, 
they they launched this. They were campaign. murderous. Yes, they launched this campaign of incredible race hatred, race hysteria, uh, even to put the, and the campaign was called the white supremacy campaign. And North Carolinians used to be proud of this. You know, you can read up on it in the history books and they were like, yeah, we put down populism and this is how we did it by sort of stoking these insane racial fears. They set up paramilitary gangs. By the way, they were called the red shirts. Isn't that interesting? It's a sort of a predecessor of the brown shirts and the black shirts. They were called the red shirts. And they went around uh, intimidating people, murdering people. And when it was when the dust had settled, they won. They defeated populism. And in one city, Wilmington, North Carolina, they not only defeated uh, the populists and the Republicans who were in North Carolina were known as the fusionists. They not only had defeated them, they overthrew the local fusionist government, the, the mayor. And you know went into ta- went into this town with with guns and and murdered and lynched and burned the black part of town. Uh, you know it's, it's just it's incredible and and they were never punished for doing this. It's the only um, known military coup in American history was to overthrow this sort of Republican populist regime in Wilmington, North Carolina. It, absolutely horrifying little piece of history. By the way, uh, but again, it's well known if you if you want to look into it. But people don't; they don't want to look into it. Now, then, you mentioned Tom Watson. He is a fascinating figure. And so, what happened to Tom Watson is he was uh, one of the most flamboyant populists around. He was from Georgia, and he started out his he was you know sort of this arch Jeffersonian, and he started out his career as a populist, you know, full of promise. That they ran him as their vice presidential nominee in 1896, which we'll talk about in a minute. It didn't work out for him. He was humiliated on the national stage in a kind of spectacular way. And after that, he sort of went quiet for a couple of years. And he, he had started out, as you mentioned, you read that famous quote from him. He had started out as an advocate of interracial solidarity, you know, working class solidarity between blacks and whites. And he, after this sort of spectacular defeat and humiliation, he went quiet for a couple of years, and then he reemerged uh, in, I believe, in 1900 or around there. A couple of years later, he reemerged as the biggest racist in the South, and turned against his former allies in this absolutely vicious manner. And this, too, but by this time, so. So it's important to get the details right here. By the time he did this, by the time he made his sort of extreme racist turn, the populist party didn't exist any longer as a national force. There were still pockets of populism here and there, but they were basically wiped out. Now, Watson continued to call himself a populist uh, because he, you know, in Georgia, he was it. He was the party. And so he continued to call himself that. But the party nationally, you know, like in a place like Kansas, was basically dead by that point. But he, like I say, he reemerged as the biggest racist in America, urging on lynch mobs, uh, and then became this spectacular anti-Semite. In uh, I forget what year now. We're talking about like 1912 or something. He had a newspaper, and he uh, was basically responsible for the lynching uh, of the, one of the most uh, notorious lynchings. In Southern history, it was a Jewish factory manager who had been uh, wrongly accused of murdering one of his employees. Yeah, Tom Watson was responsible for that. 
historians are fascinated by his career because it's the original example of a sort of left-wing figure, like something going wrong with him mentally and him turning to this sort of insane, vicious, you know, becoming this vicious right winger. I discovered I'm uh, so that's one of the most famous works of American history is this biography of Tom Watson written by the Southern historian C. Van Woodward. Uh, And it's like I say, historians are fascinated by this, how this guy went wrong, what went wrong with him. Um, But Woodward, interestingly, Woodward does not say that this is uh, this is the danger of populism. Woodward says, no, there's something wrong with Tom Watson. Tom Watson kind of had a screw loose. uh, And, you know, his humiliation on the national stage sort of made something go wrong in his mind. Uh, I, after I finished the book, I uh, was I found uh, an essay that I really wish I had seen before I published the book uh, by W.E.B. Du Bois, where he talks about Watson and populism. And it's a it's a history of the state of Georgia. But it's a beautiful essay because uh, he's talking about you know the sort of tragic history of the South and how everybody that that thinks about it understands that the only real hope for some kind of resolution to the to the awful history of Georgia is when the white working class white farmers get together with black farmers and he said there's only been one moment in the history of the state when that was possible and that moment was populism but it was this very very brief moment and it was snuffed out almost immediately by the ruling class and then the leader the the leader on the white side of this uh, he's as uh, Du Bois puts it. He tried to out Herod Herod, and he becomes more racist than the racists, and you know, com- you know, completely changes sides in this spectacular way. Anyhow, it's a great essay. Yeah, I mean that that's that history is so agonizing. So I'm I'm in my North Carolinian closet, but I grew up in Georgia, in you know, liberal bastion, Athens, Georgia. But we're all sitting here with bated breath, wondering if Georgia will finally be allowed to. But we 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 say turn blue, but actually to 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 be the liberal state that it is if people were actually enfranchised in mass. And so, you know, there are, again, these echoes. I If we're recommending reading, I do want to recommend Omar Ali's book in the lion's mouth, Black Populism in the New South. It's an excellent book. He's here in Greensboro at UNCG. If people want to. What, you know, this guy. Yes. Oh, I do. Oh, that's fantastic. So that was one of my sources. That's the book about that's the that's the sort of. Um, uh, authoritative work on black populism. By the way, we know we know very little about black populism. There there were not a lot of records, uh, and so it's 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 been it's always been kind of a mysterious movement to historians. But he does a very good job with it. I thought he does an excellent job. I actually spent the day after Donald Trump was elected with with Omar, uh, which was a bit a bit surreal. So th- I think you know we're we segued perfectly into anti populism, which I sense is your true topic. You know, in the sense that it, <laughs> right, what what the the present day enemies of populism like to say is that yes, it's it's racist demagoguery, right? It is. It is Trump, it is Bolsonaro, it is Orban, and it's this toxic tendency. So, yeah, maybe trace that, I mean, from the late 19th century. Where does that idea come from? And then how does it actually, you know, it's it's shape-shifted. No one would have made that accusation in the, in the 1890s. They accused populism of a lot of other things, but they did not accuse it at the time of being racist or xenophobic or anti-Semitic even. And uh, there's a 
really obvious reason for that once you start digging in the literature of anti-populism. You know, because the the, the elite of, of America, the sort of ruling elite of this country, despised and hated and hated the populist movement and generated a what I call, you know, a whole literature of their own, this anti-populist literature denouncing the populist movement. And if you dig in this literature, you right away discover why they didn't accuse populism of being racist and anti-Semitic. It's because they themselves were so racist and anti-Semitic. It would have been really odd to accuse someone else of that. It's the, the racism of that period is just in your face once you start reading in this literature. But okay, to take a step back, there was this massive reaction against populism once it sort of sprang up in Kansas. Uh, you know, people didn't welcome, this is going to be a big shock to you, Astra, but people didn't welcome this new left-wing movement with open arms. <laughs> they, they feared and hated it. They despised it. Uh, they regarded it as um, the coming of the class war. Um, they thought it was the French Revolution all over again. And things came to a head in the year 1896. There had been a depression. There was a, a bad depression in America, a business depression, economic depression. There were strikes all over the place. The, the Pullman strike, famously, the, probably the biggest national strike we've ever had. And the Democratic Party met for the, this is a presidential election year. The Democratic Party met for their convention in Chicago. Now, I should mention here, because your listeners are going to be confused, the Democratic Party nationally was different than the Southern Democrats. The Southern Democrats, the Bourbon Democrats, uh, were important in the National Democratic Party, but they didn't, uh, they, they weren't uh, sort of determinative. They couldn't like force the National Democrats to, uh, choose one of their guys. In fact, they, that, was, that would have been rare at the time. Uh, so the National Democratic Party meets for their convention in Chicago, and they nominate this guy, William Jennings Bryan, who is 36 years old, the youngest presidential candidate of all time. They nominate him for president. He's a one-term congressman from Nebraska, and they nominate him on the strength of a speech that he's just given attacking the gold standard. This is the famous cross of gold speech where he compares the gold standard to a, uh, you know, to a cross on which we are trying to, uh, the government is trying to crucify the working class. You know, he is acclaimed for this speech. The Democratic Party nominates him uh, and the East Coast elite of this country is absolutely aghast. And then a few weeks later, the Populist Party, they're still in business in 1896. In fact, they think it's going to be their year. They meet for their convention and they've discovered that Brian has stolen their thunder. He's stolen their number one issue, you know, the gold standard. He's taken that away from them. And so they're trying to figure out what to do. And they decide to endorse him. You know, he's not with them on a lot of their other issues. Uh, he's not with them on, you know, women's suffrage. He's not with them on right on the railroad issue. You know, all these the monopoly issue, all these other things. He's not there, but he is with them on um, on this big issue of currency reform. And so they endorse Brian. Uh, they do this kind of fusion strategy on a national level and they make Tom Watson their vice presidential candidate. Anyhow, long story short, the national sort of the East Coast elite of this country goes absolutely berserk and stirs up this kind of hysteria against Brian. And they call Brian the most extraordinary names. Uh, they say that Brian is anti-intellectual. 
They say that Brian is mentally ill. The New York Times runs a series of articles suggesting that he is in the grip of paranoia, that he, you know, that he's crazy. Uh, the reason he's anti-intellectual is because he doesn't understand modern economics. He doesn't understand globalization. He doesn't understand, you know, how modern economies work, that they need the gold standard. Um, they say that he is, he represents, this is the most important one. He represents the worst elements of society coming together against the best. So the lowest orders, the lowest ranks of society trying to, to, to grab control of the economy from the people who shouldn't rightfully control it, you know, the captains of industry, the uh, East Coast people, graduates of fancy colleges, East Coast elite. And they come together against Brian in this extraordinary coalition, this sort of gathering of the elite tribes. And I mean all of them. It was um, railroad tycoons, millionaires, uh, financiers, together with uh, university presidents, you know, big name intellectuals. William Graham Sumner was on board with this, for example, uh, society preachers, but most importantly, uh, newspaper owners. And the newspapers of America began this incredible campaign of hysterical attacks on William Jennings Bryan. You know, this is the class war. This is the French Revolution. This is Jacobinism come home to America. And we've got to stamp this thing out. And their one word description for Bryanism, for all of the ills that I just mentioned, was populism. This is what they called it. Bryanism was uh, was populism. Populism is anti-intellectualism. It's mental illness. It's this uprising of the lower orders who don't understand globalization, all of this stuff. And uh, they succeed and they beat Brian and the populist party after this defeat basically falls apart, you know, because they've made this incredible compromise in order to back William Jennings Bryan. And now it's come to nothing. And so they that's the end of them. And what's funny is that the stereotype that the East Coast press invents to describe Bryanism, what we call populism, this stereotype lives on and in the 1950s gets embraced by academia. So then this, this sort of stereotype from the 1890s weirdly resurfaces in the 1950s, actually, this, so there's a, it, I, I, it doesn't just resurface in the 1950s. This is another thing that resurfaces again and again in American history. So I said earlier that there's a populist tradition in American life. There's also an anti-populist tradition where this same sort of understanding of working class movements comes up again and again. The working class movements are dangerous, that they're led by demagogues, uh, they're anti-intellectual, that they are, they're trying to put the, you know, the worst people in charge of society. Uh, and that comes up again in the 1930s in opposition to Franklin Roosevelt, with a lot of eugenics mixed in, because that was the science of the day, was that the, the lower orders were lower because they deserved to be lower, because they were, you know, they were genetically chosen to be the lower orders. And they how dare they rise up against the people that nature and science and et cetera have chosen to run society, you know, the, the best and the brightest, et cetera, et cetera. So this idea, these ideas are another sort of persistent strain in American life. This tradition is profoundly mistrustful of democracy. Uh, this, the, this sort of anti-populist theme, this anti-populist tradition really dislikes democracy. Uh, and it's, again, it's strong in American life. Well, then a really weird thing happens. 
Astra, in the 1950s, when you have a generation of liberal academics, high-ranking liberal academics at the great universities, you know, this is the, the, the sort of leading scholars of the 1950s, the consensus scholars, basically embrace this anti-populist idea, this whole anti-populist theory of um, democracy. You know, the democracy, mass democracy is not a good thing. Mass democracy is actually kind of dangerous. Uh, you know, the people are in, uh, you know, are puppets in the hands of these demagogues. They're anti-intellectual. They're paranoid. They've got all of these pathologies going on there. And then sort of some new psychological stuff They're uh, They're prone to authoritarianism. Uh, and then this this uh, this other new idea that the, that if you let working class people you know form movements and join up with mass movements, they will automatically be racist and anti-Semitic. And the uh, sort of leading uh, and there's a whole bunch of different scholars working on this idea at the same time in the 1950s. But the one that's most important for our purposes is the historian Richard Hofstadter. And he's, uh, he decides to, to summarize this kind of way of looking at um, mass movements of working class people with the word populism. Okay. And he does this because he's written a, a new history of the populist movement. It comes out in 1955. It's called The Age of Reform. And it's one of the most famous works of American history ever. He wins the Pulitzer Prize for it. Uh, it's this entire revisionist take on American, on the history of progressive movements in America. Up until then, uh, historians had looked very kindly on populism and on the labor movement and things like that. And they regarded, you know, like the early socialist movement, they regarded these people as heroes, uh, especially the populists. They were regarded as heroes. And Hofstadter says, no, uh, there were all these things wrong with the populist movement. They were, you know, they had status anxiety. They were, uh, they had this, this, this paranoid streak. They believed in conspiracy theories. They were anti-Semitic. They were anti-intellectual, um, you know, again, because they went against the great intellectuals of the time. And, uh, you know, right on down, down the list, this is enormously influential. And he's the one, this is where the word populism starts, stops being uh, uh, upper, spelled with an uppercase P, you know, a reference to this movement in the 1890s. It becomes a generic term to describe the uh, pathological movements of working class people. Okay, that's how he redefines it. And uh, it's enormous, like I say, it's enormously influential, you know, Book of the Month Club, Pulitzer Prize, bestseller, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it is almost within 10 years, his take on the populist movement of the 1890s is completely refuted by other American historians. They go after him and you basically destroy his take on populism. No, it wasn't particularly conspiratorial. You know, some of them were, but so were a lot of other people at the time. No, it wasn't particularly anti-Semitic. Again, some of them were, but so was a lot of other people at the time. Uh, it wasn't uh, anti-intellectual. You know, it wasn't xenophobic. It wasn't, you know, anti-immigrant, you know, right down the list. It was uh, everything he said about populism was basically uh, refuted by other American historians. And there have been it, probably a hundred books and articles refuting Hofstadter's take on populism. But here's the punchline, Astra. That doesn't matter. 
Hofstadter's take on populism is still riding high today. Uh, it is, in fact, the foundation stone of an entire pedagogy that they call global populism studies. It's all based on Hofstadter's redefinition of populism as um, you know, the pathological movement of authoritarian-minded, racist, working-class people. Even though that is not what populism was, they, uh, you know, they start their definition with his definition. They start their take on populism with Hofstadter's definition. And so then the question, I'm reading this and I'm like, well, this is really, Hofstadter has just taken this sort of stereotype built by American newspapers in the 1890s and has kind of rejuvenated it using, um, you know, fancy psychological buzzwords of the 1950s. Uh, you know, that's obviously what he's, what he's done. Uh, why does his take on it, why does it persist? Why is it still going? And I'll get, I mean, just the other day, I opened up a very popular work of, of history that refers to Hofstadter all over the place and uses the word populism exclusively as a synonym for racist demagogue. Uh, and has well, the author has no idea that Hofstadter was refuted and just assumes that this is, you know, this is correct, that that's what populism was. Uh, why does this bad idea persist, even though it was refuted? Well, I think this is one thing that they get right about populism is that it is anti-elitist. That is something that's accurate. Right. And that's part of the the offense that's being the offense that that is being uh, made. That's the transgression. Uh, and Oh, yeah. But there's yeah, there's no doubt about that. Of course, they were anti anti elite. Yes. But so is Thomas Jefferson. I mean, that's that's our history. That's who we are. That's Thomas Paine. That's like that is America is anti elite. So in that sense, they are deep in the American grain. The reason Hofstadter's idea persists is because it was flattering to this group of intellectuals coming up in the 1950s. Again, what they, they called themselves the consensus scholars, and they had a very different understanding of how American government worked than the sort of reform movements of the past. Uh, and their idea was that you don't get reform by building a mass movement of working class people in the streets. You don't get reform through the labor movement. You don't get reform by strikes. Uh, you don't get reform by building a giant union of farmers. You get reform by people like them by putting people like them in charge, okay? So this is, you know, the 1950s. This is the heyday of managerialism in American life. And so you've got MBAs are taking over the corporations, you know, no longer being run by entrepreneurs and, you know, heirs and stuff like that. They're being run by MBAs. You've got PhD, people with PhDs running the great departments in Washington. You've got Robert McNamara at the Department of Defense, the sort of the smartest guys in the yeah, room no, together. What is the McNamara the thing? Brightest. It's the best and the yeah. brightest. Sorry. Yeah. The best and the brightest become the smartest guys in the room, though. That's the moral of the story. Yeah, no, that's, that's, you, you, you nailed it exactly there. <laughs> but, 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 yeah, McNamara is the sort of – he is the face of managerialism of the, you know, the, 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 the sort of can do managerial style, you know, the man, the, the, the guys, uh, the, the intellectuals will win the cold war for us. The guys with the computers will give us a planned economy that will deliver prosperity to everyone. And, uh, they'll win the Vietnam war and they'll, you know, they'll do all these things. And it's basically a brief for rule by a certain class 
by this class, by, by basically by the professional elite. That is what the word comes to mean. It's as this new managerial elite is rising up, they use the word populism to describe that which they are displacing. That's what the word means to this day. Whenever you hear the word populism used in this way, it's like you think about the Europeans who use it. They're talking about the opposite of these the technocrats in Brussels. I think that's why it's so important to highlight that the early populists were right about monetary policy, for example, right? And that so many of their demands were won. And and there's this... They were, yeah, they were right. They The intellectuals of the time were wrong. The, the highfalutin economists and... Uh, and, and scholars, you know, the scholars of the day were all into like social Darwinism and the gold standards. They were, they were completely wrong. Right. So you have to challenge the experts sometimes. I mean, and the experts are not neutral. But I I, I want you to, to talk more about this because meritocracy is something that you have written and railed against so much. And, and I think especially at this moment, you know, when there are a lot of bad shit conspiracy theories, right? And there is a lot of ignorance. And so... You know, it, you have to have that leap of faith and trust people's uh, capacity. And and yet, you know, I guess, to you know, the thing I want to say is that, you know, liberals shouting trust experts, believe science, fact check, fact check is not sufficient. Right. Um, so where. Yeah, well, they never fact check themselves. <laughs> where are we and why is meritocracy such a corrosive paradigm? Well, first of all, because it's self-serving, meritocracy tells us that it's ruled by, again, there's that term, the best and the brightest, uh, the smartest guys in the room. But it always turns out to be, and I mean always, uh, corrupted in some spectacular way. When I was in graduate school, Astra, the, um, the hot subject of the day was the rise of the professions. And everybody was wanted to write his, uh, histories of the professions and how professions come together and how professions work. And what fascinated me about all that was how professions fail, you know, because these are the highly educated experts to whom we have, just as Richard Hofstadter and his friends wanted, we have turned over to them the operation of society, the running of society. And you come face to face with this class of people all the time, whether you're talking about your 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 you know your physician, or you're talking about scientists, or you're talking about the guys down at city hall that give you a permit to uh, you know to 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 do whatever work you want to do on on your house. I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, the librarian at your local public library, you know, the the administrator at your kid's college. Uh, you know, experts are societies. This is society's ruling class. That we're talking about here, their society's off officer class. The you know the meritocracy is the idea that these people deserve to rule because they are the best. That this elite is a legitimate elite. That this hierarchy is a legitimate hierarchy. That when you base hierarchy on SAT scores or, or uh, grade point averages, that that makes it a legitimate hierarchy. And I'm here to tell you, Astra, that in fact, this members of this class the professional class, actually act like any other class. They, they help each other out. They, they show solidarity in the face of challenges. They excuse each other's um, transgressions. Uh, they circle the wagons to prevent uh, themselves from being criticized. And most importantly, they, uh, they refuse to listen to outside voices. This is, in fact, this is the definition of a profession. They're autonomous. So economists don't have to listen to you and me when we 
talk about our opinions on economics. As the populists learned in the 1890s, the economics profession doesn't care what you think. You know, you're outside of, you know, that's that's the nature of a profession. They don't have to listen to you. You know, it's by its nature profoundly undemocratic. And then you put them in charge. And you remember when Barack Obama got elected? By the way, this is where this story becomes very personal for me, because I was a big fan of Barack Obama in 2008. And I thought he was uh, I thought he was going to be a great president. And one of the reasons I thought that is because at the time I still believed in this kind of in this kind of administration. You know, after remember George Bush had filled the government with these sort of hacks and cronies and fools, and, and they had run everything wrong, and they had allowed this incredible financial catastrophe to take place, in addition to the Iraq war, and in addition to all their other catastrophes. I mean, these imbeciles. And so I was ready for government by expert when Obama comes in. And sure enough, that's exactly what Obama does. And he, he, he appoints his cabinet that's filled with geniuses. And I mean, literally, people who got the genius grant People, he wasn't even, Obama wasn't even the only Nobel Prize winner in his cabinet. There was, <laughs> there was another one. And there are people with Pulitzer Prizes and there are people with every imaginable prize. And they, he had the president of Harvard advising him on economic policy, right? Larry Summers, advised, the smartest guy in America, advising him on economic policy. And what do these people do? They continue the policies of the Bush administration on, uh, as regards to the banks. They, everybody gets off the hook. They basically say at one point, Obama's Justice Department says at one point, bankers are special creatures. I'm paraphrasing. They didn't say this actually, but bankers are special creatures and we should not prosecute them. They are above prosecution for their crimes. I've heard that they're doing God's work. I mean, this is something I've, I've been told by. <laughs> by... Well, or or is, it, is it the opposite that if you prosecute them, then the economy will crash. And so therefore, you know, all these jobs are at stake. So you have to be nice to them, you know, which is a kind of fine brand scenario. This gets to the problem. So so two more questions. But, you know, we have two ruling class parties and we have an a, a public that is angry at the elites. I'm angry at the elites. You're angry at the elites. Right. And the two parties channel this in different ways. So there were Republicans are happy to use anti-elite rhetoric to have this faux populism. And then the Democrats, they are the cultural elite, so they can't bash that, but they're not going to point their, their fingers at the ruling class, the donors that they serve. So that's the bind that we're in. And I guess my question, you know, is a strategic one, which is, do you think populism is a winning electoral strategy for the left right now? And do we you know, keep going on this path. You have sort of strategic advice as we sit in this strange election interregnum. I think it absolutely is uh, a winning strategy because America is, at the end of the day, America is a populist country. Uh, that the anti-elitism that you described, all you know, when I describe what real populism is, everybody is familiar with that somewhere in the back of their minds, and they know that that you know that is who we are. You, you look back to the great period of liberal political dominance, the 1930s and 1940s, and it was a very populist time. I'm, I mean, not just politically with Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, which, you know, they basically, the populist, the old pro political program of the populist party got enacted under Roosevelt, but also culturally, you know, you look at the Hollywood movies of the period, you know, the Frank Capra 
you know, it's just like, whoa, in your face, populism, this faith in the people, this hatred of elites, specifically of bankers. Or you look at the like WPA murals of the time, you know, celebrating working class people or the like all of those sort of photographic projects of, where, where a photographer would go down to the south and take pictures of sharecroppers and stuff like that. It was a time of it, it, this is the, the great liberal triumph. And it's a time of incredible, intense populism. And it's also the labor movement is growing by leaps and bounds. The CIO, which was extremely populist as opposed to the uh, AFL. And so populism is it coincides with liberal triumph. There's no doubt about that in my mind. But it's also true that we've that the Democratic Party has done everything in their power to put that behind them and to get themselves away from that and to sort of embrace the managerial strategy, the uh, meritocratic strategy of, of the consensus generation. They've absolutely and totally they have done that. And which has cleared the way for the Republicans to embrace this 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 fake populism that is nevertheless, even though it's phony, is rhetorically extremely appealing uh, to people. And couple and coupled with, I mean, it's it's rhetorically this phony populism coupled with a political strategy that is so anti-democratic in the sense that it's based on voter suppression. They're they're calling literally stop the count, stop the vote, and they've set themselves up in the Supreme Court to sabotage any ostensibly democratic legislation. So it's an amazing pairing. Yep. And the Electoral College, lest we forget, which is the most anti, anti-democratic, anti-populist institution out there. God, what were they saying just today? I, I'm sorry, I, I, I've already forgot. I was going to bring this up to you because it's this extraordinary bit of anti-populism from uh, it was from Lindsey Graham or somebody like that. God, what did he say? Oh, he was saying that they'll never win elections if there isn't. No, they, yeah, they're, they're, they Right. They want to complicate voting. The whole point of populism was to open up the voting process to us. I mean, and that is the that is the great sort of powerful tradition in American life is to constantly enlarge the circle of who gets to vote and encourage people to vote in it, enlarge the franchise. And the, the whole republic, you know, what the Republicans are after is the opposite, is to constantly problematize voting, uh, make it scary for people, uh, you know, cast doubts on its legitimacy. You know, the, it's, it's this profoundly anti-populist project in that sense. But then rhetorically, they're all about denouncing it. <laughs> Sorry, it's almost too, too funny, isn't it? It's like we're in such a crazy world, but there's no doubt in my mind to answer your question there's no doubt in my mind that the way you beat right-wing populism is with the real deal and i don't know what form that's going to take there's a lot of different forms it could take uh, a strictly rhetorical left-wing populism what would be better is if you actually built you know look at the definition of populism it's about movements transracial movements of working class people you you know build those movements again get the labor movement up and running again you know build those movements. You can, we can stop this thing. We can at least short circuit this thing. Let me put it that way. But there's a, a, a huge problem, Astra. Uh, when you mentioned that we have two parties of the ruling class in America, that's absolutely true, by the way. And this is, this is a point that has taken me so many years to understand, that the two parties in this country basically represent uh, the two elites. Uh, you know, the Republicans are your kind of business elite, but a certain kind of business elite, um, uh, entrepreneurial, uh, small business elite, uh, big oil, that kind of thing. Uh, and the, the Democrats represent essentially everyone else. 
So Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Hollywood, big pharma, you know, big medicine, all that. That's that's the Democrats. The insurance industry and, gets both of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So some of them are contested. Like Wall Street, when we were younger, Wall Street was contested. They could go either way. But now they're pretty much on the side of the Democrats. And, uh, you know, so there's there's two different elite groups in this country. But what we've seen in the last couple of years is is you want to talk about hegemony. The liberals have this, they have it total cultural hegemony in this country that uh, that I, you know, that has materialized very suddenly in the last few years in a kind of a shocking way. I mean, when I was doing The Bachelor magazine, we used to make fun of a lot of these right wing talking points. And one of my favorite ones to make fun of was the idea that there was a liberal, you know, the liberal media, you know, I'd be like, ha ha ha, the media is not liberal, you know, and I would prove it by this, that and the other. Well, they are. It's, it turns out to be true, Astra. Mm-hmm. Liberal, liberal, no, no, liberal in this in this limited sense, though, right? Because they'll never sort of look deeply under the hood. But I do think we're in a moment where uh, liberals are learning. So I kind of want to end with this because it's it's one optimistic thought I have, which is in contrast to the aftermath of the 2016 election, which you know, which we began with. I'm seeing actually this, I'm seeing right now a, a lot less discussion of populism and more attention to our political institutions, the, the political system, and the fact that American democracy has a tendency towards minority rule. So the Supreme Court, the Electoral College, the fact that Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden won the popular vote by millions of ballots and yet do not have the ability <laughs> necessarily to govern. So I think that is that's a kind of progress in the discourse. And and you mentioned before we started that you're seeing people, uh, unexpected scribes writing articles that you may have written a few years back. So maybe maybe we can end here that there does seem to be maybe some space for for a breakthrough, at least in the populism discourse. Yeah. And by the way, I, I want to bring it back to a subject that is that is close to your heart, which is the, the long sort of trajectory of democracy itself in this country. And I want to remind you that democracy has always been a contested value in America. And what I mean by that is that the founding fathers didn't like democracy. This was a bad word to them. This was something that they were afraid of. You know, that sense that democracy meant mob rule that idea persisted and persists to this day. Uh, but the problem is that at some point they couldn't say that democracy meant mob rule anymore because America had fought a, two world wars for democracy. You know, we were supposedly the arsenal of democracy. You know, that's who we were, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they had to come up with a different word to describe this fear of ordinary people, this fear of you know, ruled by the mass. And so the word they came up with was populism. Uh, And it's sort of, it's, that's how they, uh, that's the vehicle now for expressing that fear. But yes, it is, it is so hopeful to me that we're, that we finally focused on things like the, um, the electoral college. But then again, you know, we focused on it after the year 2000, remember, because Bush, uh, Gore beat Bush handily in the popular vote. And yet Bush became president. How many times does this have to happen before we, uh, you know, 
before we take action about it. It's no, but I, I think you're you're democratic. I mean, I think you actually had a great ending to two questions, uh, two questions ago, where you're just like, we can beat this. Because I, I think the point though is, you know, are you going to blame the people or blame the political institutions? That's the question. Like, what is the what is the first uh, thing you're going to point the finger at? I agree. You know, this kind of wave of awareness about the structural obstacles we face might not last, but I'm at least reassured that there seems to be more attention to it and less of this, you know, the people are the problem. Because right now the Dem- the Republicans are being the explicitly anti-democracy party. They're not denouncing populism. They're denouncing democracy, right? They're literally saying if people vote, we lose. Too much de- too- rank democracy is a problem. They're, t- they're invoking mob rule. I mean, Mike Lee, the senator, has talked about repealing the direct election of senators, right? I mean, he's saying that needs to go. (laughs) So I think when we have this ridiculously polarized political system and when one party, the Republicans, is actually saying, actually, we hate democracy, then that might force the other party to say, well, fuck, democracy is pretty good. (laughs) Uh, Wouldn't that be awesome if if the Democrats would really get behind that? And uh, But of course, they believe in their own version of managed democracy, which is, you know, they want their own machine to stay intact and you elect your leaders and the leaders come here to Washington. And then we, you know, we get together with the lobbyists and we'll work it all out for you. Uh, and, and I don't like that either. No, so. I don't either. Yeah. Well, Tom, it has been wonderful talking to you and learning from you for so many years. All of your books have really, you know, just been influential for me and so many others. So I appreciate you taking the time today. Astra, this has been great. Thomas Frank is the author of books about culture, politics, and business, including, most recently, The People Know, A Brief History of Antipopulism. Many years ago, Frank founded The Baffler Magazine. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and co-founder of The Debt Collective, a union for debtors. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that all forms of the state have democracy for their truth, and for that reason are false to the extent that they are not democracy. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. Same on Facebook. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please also rate and review us. Those reviews, as long as they are positive, help introduce us to new listeners. But what truly does that is you telling your friends, comrades, families, total strangers that you like the show and that they should listen to it. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.